If you've enjoyed listening to Issues Etc. in 2022, please make a year-end tax-deductible gift to support this worldwide outreach. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution today at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022. we know the story. Sometimes we've heard it so many times, it's just so familiar. We don't listen anymore. What is the real Christmas story? Who are the real cast of characters in that famous nativity? Merry Christmas. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking with Dr. Paul Meyer about the first Christmas, and then we're going to be studying the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, with Dr. Arthur Just of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Paul Meyer is a regular guest, professor emeritus of ancient history at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, author of several books, including In the Fullness of Time, A Historian Looks at Christmas, Easter, and the Early Church, and his latest novel titled The Constantine Codex. Dr. Meyer, welcome back to Issues Etc. Good to be back with you, Todd. Give us a snapshot, if you would, of uh, the world, in particular first century Palestine during Roman rule, into which Jesus Christ was born. Well, the Jewish people from about 160 B.C. on had achieved their independence from the uh, overpowering Assyrian forces to the north. And uh, so this was their last independence, you might say, really until the modern era. And uh, then in 63 B.C., the Romans took over. General Pompey conquered Jerusalem. And ever since that time, they were under either an actual Roman governor, administrator, or a client king who served in the place of the uh, Roman governor, and that would be Herod the Great. Uh, Herod himself, of course, has a very checkered background. He was the son of Antipater, who was uh, a friend of the Romans and helped them when they were conquering Egypt, and so this uh, kind of established the Herodian dynasty on the throne there as Roman client kings, meaning that they were simply Roman governors with the title of king, however, and so they could uh, have some independence, you might say, but they were, the Palestinians at that point, I'm not sure they should be called that, the Judeans were under uh, Roman control. Uh, This meant that, uh, yes, they were taxed, but not overpoweringly so. You know, I think our biblical novels sometimes and movies exaggerate that. I've often said I I would rather be a a Jew paying the provincial Roman tax than American income tax, for example. Uh, so it's, it's all somewhat relative. Uh, there was peace in the land, yes, because at this point the Romans had rolled out the welcome blanket of peace across the whole Mediterranean world, and so uh, this was a time of uh, peace and prosperity for the, uh, the empire in general and Judea in particular. Much is made of the messianic expectations of Jews at this time. How would you describe that, Dr. Meyer? Well, there had always been these messianic predictions in the Old Testament uh, of, uh, of God's great deliverer. It was understood more in a political sense by the people. They thought that uh, when the Messiah had come, he would liberate the land from all control by the Romans or anyone else. You have to remember that for any foreign governor to be in charge in Palestine... 
uh, was something of a heresy because of the Deuteronomy passage that says, you shall not place over you one who is not your brother. And so any Gentile who was in charge at the time, uh, be he uh, Herod uh, or later on in the New Testament, Pontius Pilate or whatever, this was heretical as far as the Jews were concerned. And for that reason, they're, they're looking for a political Messiah who will overthrow the Romans. The Messiah came all right, but it turns out that he was a spiritual Messiah, not a political one, as we well know. Luke starts his account proper of Jesus' uh, birth with uh, Caesar's census of the Roman world. It's become so much embedded in our narrative of the thing, we kind of just read right past it. What was the Roman emperor up to in this census? Well, I think it's a very interesting way that Luke begins the nativity account. You know, he doesn't begin it with any biblical figure we're familiar with, no Mary or Joseph or baby Jesus or shepherds or magi. He begins with Caesar Augustus, who otherwise I think is a rather unchristmassy figure. <laughs> Have you ever received a Christmas card with a marble bust of Augustus on the, on the front? I don't think it would fly. Uh, or slogan inside uh, Caesar's greetings, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but, but it's Luke's way of authenticating the episode. He's saying uh, this took place at a definite time and place that you can check up on, you people who were up in your Roman politics. Everybody knew about the great Augustus. He was probably the finest uh, emperor the Romans ever had. Too bad that it was right at the beginning only. Uh, but he, he uh, established uh, the Pax Augusta, it was called the the peace of uh, Augustus across the empire. And he was very interested, of course, in how many subjects he had uh, for military purposes, for fiscal purposes, you know, collecting the taxes and this kind of thing. And so he himself uh, was so uh, pleased with the censuses that he personally took that uh, when he died, he had inscribed on two marble columns, I should say two bronze columns, in front of his uh, um, mausoleum, a, uh, a list of the 36 items for which he was most proud, uh, kind of a political testament. And point number eight, I took a census of the empire three times. And again, the census that reached far off Judea was probably in response to that middle census, which he took about 8 B.C., and it would then may have been implemented in Judea about two or three years later, because uh, Jesus himself, as you know, was not born in the year one or zero. It was probably 5 B.C. So it was probably two or three years later that the census uh, reached uh, the Holy Land, we call it, and, uh, and uh, it was implemented then by Herod. So that brings up the question of the date. Um, we... We, we have some markers, you just mentioned one of them. How close can we come to, if we can at all, to dating the actual birth of Christ? We had a conference, Todd, at the University of Mississippi some years ago, uh, a nativity chronology conference in which we tried to get as close as we could to dating the, the nativity itself. And uh, the, about the closest we could actually get is uh, sometime between June and December of 5 B.C. Uh, I know it's not as nearly as precise as we would like, but that's about the best we can do in terms of all the parameters that uh, uh, come into the nativity account. There's a big movement recently, of course, uh, to try to get Jesus 
born closer to the dates when he should. <laughs> that is, you know, 1 B.C. or 1 A.D. or something like that. Uh, there's a, a discussion once again arising over the uh, time of the death of Herod the Great. Uh, the, the canonical, <laughs> usual uh, date is around the 1st of April 4 B.C., and this, of course, alerted the Church some years ago as to how the Magi episode could ever have taken place if Herod had been dead four years already in the grave. And so we knew something was wrong with the calendar, and so uh, Jesus was at that point shifted back to 4 or 5 B.C. Recently, however, there has been some attempt to get Herod uh, dying more properly around 1 B.C., but I don't think it's successful myself. So um, let's talk a bit about the the persons of Mary and Joseph. Joseph is simply re- referred to as a righteous man, and then Mary, of course, as a virgin. Uh, she's just described in those terms, uh, and both of them hailing from Nazareth. Talk about these two, if you would. It's interesting to figure out why Joseph would have been up in Nazareth in the first place. He was probably from Bethlehem. Um, uh, some years ago at the University of Chicago, Shirley Jackson Case, a professor of New Testament, uh, had an interesting idea, and that is that Joseph came north uh, to uh, Nazareth because he was involved in the reconstruction of Sepphoris. Uh, S-E-P-H-O-R-I-S. It's, uh, the name does not show up in the New Testament, but it's a very famous early capital of Galilee, uh, which resisted the Roman census that we were talking about, and uh, to make an object lesson of the city, the Romans did tear the city apart. And so Herod Antipas, that was the most successful son of Herod the Great, rebuilt the city in about a 12-year period, which is about the average for Herodian city building proclivities. And uh, in order to build this thing that fast, he would have to have uh, construction help from all over the Holy Land, and for that reason, uh, Professor Case, uh, I, th- I think quite justifiably, suggests that uh, Joseph, who was uh, more than just a carpenter, he was, uh, uh, it could be anybody in the construction trades, the term tecton <clears throat> means wood carpenter or a bricklayer or a stone cutter, hod carrier, and so forth. Anybody in the construction trades would be a tecton, and Joseph's talents then would be needed in the rebuilding of Sepphoris, and he may then have parked his family in a lovely little suburb of Sepphoris called Nazareth. Uh, today, issues on the other foot. Sepphoris is an archaeological ruin, and Nazareth is a big city. Uh, but in those days, it was just the opposite. So um, Joseph himself, then, a righteous man indeed. He's kind of the unsung hero of the Christmas story, I think. Uh, you know, he's, he's the shadow spotlight, I should say, is on, on Mary and on the baby and and uh, he's the one, however, who has to have enormous faith uh, when he learns the reason for his uh, betrothed pregnancy. Imagine how that would affect anybody else with news like that today. Uh, but he faithfully believes uh, that this is something special, and he then credits uh, the Lord with knowing what he's doing and indeed follows through very obediently. Uh, does exactly the right thing as far as Mary's concerned, uh, shields her from... Uh, anybody but the, the nice intruders, the shepherds, and later on the Magi, and then certainly has to be on guard in the flight to Egypt and the trip back to Nazareth. He's, he's the great protector, the guardian on a human level. 
Well, that's Joseph. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about Mary. She's one of the big characters there in the true Christmas story. Dr. Paul Meyer is our guest. We're talking about the first Christmas. He's Professor Emeritus of Ancient History at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. On this Christmas Day, he is our guest, and we're talking about the real story of Christmas. We'll be right back. Listen to the best of the church's Christmas music during the entire Christmas season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. During the 12 days of Christmas, Lutheran Public Radio, LutheranPublicRadio.org. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Equipping the priesthood of all believers. You're listening to Issues Etc. The church is a family, St. Paul writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. At Redeemer Lutheran Church, we rejoice to be a part of that household of faith, gathered around the gifts of Christ in word and sacrament. If you are in the Lawrence, Kansas area, it would be our pleasure to have you join our family. We also have the privilege of serving the University of Kansas. If you have a son or daughter who attends KU or one of the other area universities, we would love for them to join us and to make Redeemer their home away from home. For more information about our church, please visit Redeemer-Lawrence.org. The Word of God, Daily Worship, Lutheran Hymnody and Catechesis, Instruction in Phonics, Traditional Math, Literature, Grammar, History, Latin, and Strings. It's all part of our daily life here at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. St. Paul is seeking teaching candidates for the 2023-24 school year. Learn more at school at stpaulhamel.org. Consider joining the faithful faculty at the only classical Lutheran school in Greater St. Louis. School at stpaulhamel.org. Back to issues, etc. On this Christmas Day, Dr. Paul Meyer is our guest. We're talking about the first Christmas. Dr. Meyer, before the break, you were telling us about Joseph. That brings us to Mary. What should we know about her? Uh, we have here, uh, you know, the most remarkable woman in all of history, uh, simply because of the incredible mission given her by God to, to bear the great Messiah himself. Uh, it's it's just almost too overpowering for her to comprehend or anyone else, even to the present day. Uh, the, the, the magnificence of the, the incarnation itself. Uh, she was a, a Galilean girl. Uh, early church tradition said she came from Sepphoris, uh, just to, which is only three and a half miles northwest of Nazareth. 
and supposedly she met Joseph in the streets of Sepphoris or somewhere. And she, um, again, was, was obedient to the, the heavenly vision. Uh, she, uh, again, in her pregnancy, visits Elizabeth, her cousin in Judea. That's so normal uh, a thing to do. And then uh, goes back to Judea for the birth itself, as you well know. Uh, she, of course, faithfully rears Jesus later on. Uh, doesn't always know where Jesus is at all times. She herself is not gifted with uh, a divine knowledge, uh, else the 12-year-old Jesus episode could never have taken place, as you well know. They'd have no trouble finding Jesus if she had divine uh, omniscience. And uh, then uh, in between uh, the episode of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Joseph uh, certainly must have died. And Mary, of course, continues holding the family together, and she is very much present in Jesus' ministry, as you well know, and she's at the cross, and later on celebrating the resurrection. One of the things that that might seem just a bit incredible of of the nativity story is the fact that they would travel. It makes it sound like they kind of pick up to travel in response to the census order back to Bethlehem from Nazareth while she is... um, about to have a baby. I don't know of anybody, much less in the ancient world, that would you know, take a very pregnant, expecting woman on even that journey from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, knowing that the baby's about to come. How do you sort that one out? Yeah, it's, it's a good uh, critique made, again, by some of those who uh, really have questions about the nativity account. Well, I think there's every reason that Mary should have made the trip with him. First of all, would she, by law, have had to accompany Joseph to Bethlehem for the census? The answer is no. Uh, we have a census document here in Michigan, as a matter of fact. Every, every uh, Advent season, the University of Michigan brings out a famous census document that they have, uh, which was signed in neighboring Egypt just uh, oh, about 100 years after the, the Nativity itself. It was a... And the neat thing about that document is not a copy of a copy of a copy of like everything else we have from the ancient world. This is the original parchment, uh, I should say papyrus, in which, written in Greek, is a census document from a fellow who is signing himself in the, for the census and his wife and his kids. That's exactly the kind of thing Joseph would have had to have signed in Bethlehem. And Mary would not have had to have been along. So why did she make the trip? Two reasons. One, you were taught in Sunday school, of course, and that is that she was the faithful believer in the Messiah and all the Messianic prophecies. And don't forget that Micah tells us that uh, it's going to be in Bethlehem where the Messiah is going to be born. And so pious believer that she is, she wants to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. It's got to be in Bethlehem. That's the one we learned in Sunday school. The one we didn't learn is, uh, and I think it's perfectly understandable, and I think it's a very beautiful uh, addendum to the Nativity account, there's a hurry-up baby uh, coming along. And people in those days could count to nine in their fingers anyway, as well as today. And so how are you ever going to explain a baby coming too soon to the nosy neighbors up in Bethlehem? Best to go with Joseph, have the baby away from home, and then come back weeks later with an infinite of, with an infinite, I should say, of uh, indeterminate uh, weeks on your arms. So it's a beautiful, understandable uh, way that uh, 
not only is Old Testament prophecy fulfilled, but also the uh, we don't have to have uh, Mary with theological explanations to the neighbors in Nazareth as to what this baby really is. So she was simply going away to have the baby. Right. Happens today yet. So bring us to, if you would, uh, Bethlehem. And it's often, as we all well know, depicted as kind of a open-ended shed, uh, animals kind of lounging about in there, lots of hay for the baby to lay on, things like that. Um, how would you gently correct our picture of the birthplace <laughs> Nice way to put it. Uh, actually, it was not any kind of a shed or an above-the-ground uh, barn or stable uh, that we're used to in terms of our the olive wood crushes that we put under our Christmas trees today. Uh, one of the earliest of the Church Fathers, a great defender of the faith, Justin Martyr, uh, who uh, taught in Rome later on, he was born in Samaria, as a matter of fact, which is, of course, just north of Judea. And so he's, in a sense, Jesus' neighbor spatially. And he tells us that uh, uh, Jesus was born in a cave or grotto or cavern in Bethlehem that was used as a stable. And indeed, the Bethlehem escarpment of the present day yet is kind of honeycombed with these, uh, with these grottos or caverns. In fact, there's one under the high altar of the Church of the Nativity of Bethlehem, and that could be the very one. Who knows? Uh, in any case, the... Uh, the uh, fact of the matter is that if nature has provided this beautiful shelter, why not use it? And so it was for this reason that it was probably uh, a grotto behind the caravansary or inn or something at the, at the at Bethlehem at the time that the nativity took place. Ken Bailey, of course, uh, a theologian who's lived over in, in uh, the Holy Land many years, has an alternate version. Uh, it, Luke says uh, that... Uh, there was no room for them in the inn. Well, the word for inn is kataluma, and that's exactly the same Greek word used for the upper room. So there was no room for them in the upper room in the residence uh, where they were staying, probably with uh, fellow cousins from the house of David. But there was room in the garage in those days, which instead of having a a Ford car, there would be a donkey. This would be kind of the stable underneath the house. It's an interesting alternative. Uh, I will follow Justin Martyr's version, however, preferably. Then um, <clears throat> that brings us to the other cast of characters, if you will, to the humble shepherds. And Luke simply notes that there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Um, sounds like a pretty ordinary practice. We have this picture of kind of a well-moonlit hillside Lots of sheep, lots of shepherds, a perfect stage for um, our version of the angels' announcement. Who, who, who would we be talking about in terms of first century Palestinian shepherds? Well, the idea that shepherds would be out in the field has given you know, some scholars an apparent clue as to the date of the nativity. Uh, they, the, the usual assumption among many scholars is that, well, the shepherds would not be out in the fields at night when the sheep were safely in the shep uh, sheepfolds uh, and in the barns or whatever else. Um, they would be out in the fields only during lambing time is the claim, and so many have tried to date the nativity in March instead. That's somewhat questionable, however, because the sheep in the Bethlehem area 
had a milder climate to enjoy uh, up the, than up in Galilee, for example, where they were indeed uh, in barns of some kind in January and February. Uh, in Judea, they're out in the range all year long. I learned this from some shepherds, indeed, from Bethlehem. And uh, the sheep in Bethlehem were usually destined for temple sacrifice uh, at Jerusalem. The temple was only you know four or five miles north of there, north northeast. And uh, for that reason, they could not be polluted by being kept inside a stable. So that particular clue does vanish in terms of when the nativity could have happened. But shepherding itself was, of course, a, a time-honored occupation uh, only for the last thousand years around the Bethlehem area. Uh, King David, of course, was born in Bethlehem around 1000 B.C., and now his greater offspring a thousand years later at the nativity. And uh, to this day, uh, you still see shepherds out in the fields. In fact, there's an area around Bethlehem called Shepherd's Fields to the present day yet, and, and they're still out there uh, all year long. Uh, some of the shepherds are watching their flocks, so some things never change. We're talking about the first Christmas. Dr. Paul Meyer is our guest. He's Professor Emeritus of Ancient History at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo and author of several books, including In the Fullness of Time, an historian looks at Christmas, Easter, and the early church. You can read an excerpt of that book, by the way, at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Listen on Demand. When we come back, the next in the cast of characters may not even belong on the stage when it comes to the first Christmas, and that is the Magi. Were they kings? Were they wise men? And where would Dr. Meyer place the Magi if not inside the nativity scene on Christmas night? And more importantly, why? We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. In the second hour of the program on this Christmas Day, we're going to be studying the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing with Dr. Arthur Just. It's a great hymn that talks about the Incarnation and beautiful poetry, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to bring us second birth. It's a hymn that Christians ought to be singing because it brings the fullness of Christmas into our Christmas celebration. We'll be talking about it with Dr. Arthur Just in Hour 2 of Issues Etc. on this Christmas Day. Stay tuned. The Wise Men are next. If you've enjoyed listening to Issues Etc. in 2022, please make a year-end tax-deductible gift to support this worldwide outreach. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution today at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022. This fallen creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with The Sinful Woman Part 2, Women Disciples, Parable of the Sower, 
how you hear, and Jesus calms the storm. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. simplyclassical.com. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men, to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Yesterday, we started playing the music of the Christmas season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. We wait until Christmas has dawned, Christmas Eve, yesterday, and then through the next 12 days of Christmas, we will be playing Christmas music, sacred Christmas music, the music of the church, because Lutheran Public Radio follows the course of the church year, and it's the very best of sacred music for the world, absolutely free, 24-7, at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Now, I know you have some extra time, perhaps, in the next couple days in this following week. Many of you are on vacation. This is a great time, if you've never listened before, to tune in at LutheranPublicRadio.org anytime, 24-7, and listen to sacred music, Christmas music, for the world. Dr. Meyer is Professor Emeritus of Ancient History at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, and he's author of several books, included In the Fullness of Time. He's also got a new novel in his skeleton series called The Constantine Codex. Dr. Meyer, tell us about The Constantine Codex. Well, it's a third in a skeleton trilogy, as you well know. Uh, I usually deal mostly in fact, Todd, as you, <laughs> being a historian. But sometimes it's just a lot of fun to, to let the imagination uh, romp away, and that's the reason for the Skeleton Trilogy. The first was A Skeleton in God's Closet, uh, which was the number one national bestseller in religious fiction when it first appeared in 1994, uh, and then More Than a Skeleton followed a couple, three years later, and then The Constantine Codex is the third in that trilogy. Uh, we got away from the name Skeleton because it's kind of macabre, and the whole idea is a play on what actually happened 
Now, the Emperor Constantine was the first Christian emperor, as we all know, but he commissioned Eusebius of Caesarea, the great church historian, to have 50 elegantly lettered copies of Holy Scripture prepared on magnificent parchment for use in the early church. Uh, around 326, 327 A.D., this, this order went out, and so Eusebius did just that. And this was one of the first examples in the world of the book format. That is no longer scrolls, but cut the scrolls down to page size, glue the edges of those pages, or sew them into what's known as a codex. And the codex is simply the earliest form of the book. So, again, the Christian faith has a, a very important role in the origin of the book industry, as a matter of fact. The Bible, Biblos, was named for one of the uh, ports in uh, Lebanon where, indeed, they imported these books. In any case, so Constantine did this, and uh, Eusebius performed this for his emperor, and not one of those codices, that's the plural of codex, has ever been found until my novel. <laughs> and when it is found, of course, it, it startles the world because there are 67 books, not 66, in this version of Scripture. What might that 67th book be like? And then the Church has got to decide uh, on the basis of uh, the evidence whether it belongs in the canon or not, which is a lot of fun. Folks, you can purchase the Constantine Codex at our website issues, etc.org. Click Listen On Demand. Dr. Meyer, uh, we talked about the shepherds. Usually in the nativity scene, we, for convenience sake, will place three kings or king-like looking figures with their gifts on display. Where would you place them historically, these uh-huh. magi? Yeah, very important. By the way, first of all, let's place them temporally, shall we, chronologically? Because so many people have the idea that uh, the, sh- the Magi arrived shortly after the shepherds, and, you know, please move aside, here comes Melchior or <laughs> Gaspar, somebody like that. And our nativity crush scenes, they have them, don't they? You know, kneeling next to the ox and the ass, and, and the shepherds, you have the Magi, the royal kings, and so forth. Uh, this is not going to work, even though it's a popular interpretation. As a matter of fact, I just reviewed a script for the History Channel in which, yep, they made the same mistake. You have the Magi visiting the same night. Uh, And you remember the movie a couple years ago, the story of the Nativity, which Hollywood finally did a pretty accurate job, except once again they had the Magi visiting the same night. No, that's impossible. Why do I say that? Because Matthew's version, and thank God, by the way, he's independent. He doesn't copy from Luke. Luke doesn't copy from Matthew. This is very important. Uh, has the Magi arriving when the Holy Family are now living in a house, uh, no longer a grotto or cave or cavern. And indeed, don't forget what happens in the Nativity account according to Matthew. Uh, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, and then he's presented at the temple in Jerusalem on day 40 after his birth. Okay, there is no way that Mary and Joseph would ever have brought baby Jesus to Bethlehem to present him at the temple 40 days after he was born if there's an all-points bulletin out for babies from Bethlehem. Therefore, unquestionably, the Magi could not have arrived in Bethlehem until day 41. 
uh, that's the terminus uh, uh, quo, you might say, the ad quem, the other end of it would be, let's not keep Jesus there, however, for two years. This is a big mistake made by quite a few scholars. As a matter of fact, in the beautiful edition the Concordia Publishing House brought out, called The Very First Christmas for Kids, the artist did make a mistake on that. He has Jesus looking like a two- or three-year-old kid waving at the Magi. That's too long. <laughs> and so some, somewhere in between is, is certainly closer. And the, the chronology will not allow much more than about 40 or 50 days after the birth for the Magi to show up in Bethlehem because it would screw up the chronology uh, of the life of Christ later on too much if it were a long sojourn there. And besides which... Is it cheaper to live at home or on the road? Are you kidding? You know, there's, there's no way the Holy Family could have afforded the resources for staying that long in Bethlehem, like two years. No, the two-year thing comes from when the star first appeared, according to the Magi. And I'm sure it could have been something like this. The Magi might have said, well, we saw the, the star six months ago. And so Herod said, okay, let's see, I'll kill all the babies. Let's make it a year. for it. No, let's make it two years to make sure we get all the babies. Could have been something like that. And so, uh, again, that does not really help us in terms of dating the nativity. But we've got to keep clear that the visit of the Magi could not have come until about uh, six or seven weeks after the nativity. Some... The Magi, who are they? Yeah, well. We know that they are a cast of university people. They're not kings. They're not oriental monarchs. They are walking universities in the absence of universities themselves, both in Mesopotamia and Persia. Uh, they were gifted in law, medicine, theology, the professions, uh, geography, history, uh, uh, certainly religious history was very big in their uh, uh, scale of... Uh, uh, abilities and so we don't know their number we know there were more than two that's all we can say or two or more and they do come from the east uh, they are a well-known cast of university people among both the mesopotamians and the persians and so uh, they're very uh, well known from antiquity we don't know the actual number or names of the magi who visited uh, the traditional names of Melchior, Caspar, Balthazar, that's only tradition. And whether they had red, uh, you know, white, black, and yellow skin, that's also all traditional. What of the, and this is one of the things that people often question, and it's not so much with the chronology of Herod's edict to uh, slaughter the innocents, but just the edict itself seems um, brutal, especially by Roman standards, if he's a kind of a vassal governor for that. What kind of a character are we dealing with in the Herod of the Slaughter of the Innocents, with about a minute or so before our next break? Well, don't we have an interesting recapitulation of that, you know, in 2012? In terms of right in the nativity time of the year, we have Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, well, what a, a terrible, terrible parallel uh, showing, indeed, uh, that atrocities can happen even in the holiest of times and how very, very sad that is in terms of uh, nativity, in terms of uh, what we're enjoying or experiencing, I should say, right now in terms of an otherwise happy Christmas season. Herod the Great, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> we have his, uh, his number very well recorded for us in Josephus, of course. My, my favorite biblical source, quasi-biblical source, I should say. We have more solid information 
from primary sources on Herod the Great than anyone else in history in the first 2,000 years A.D. from the ancient world. Do you realize that? He's the number one in terms of uh, we have more than Jesus, more than St. Paul, more than uh, Caesar Augustus, more than Octavian Augustus, more than uh, any of the greats in the Alexander the Great. We have more information on Herod the Great, uh, which I'll be delighted to get into after the break. But, uh, yes, it is easily possible that he could have done that. We'll try to explain why that uh, happened. Even though Josephus does not mention the slaughter of the innocents, it is historical, and we can demonstrate that. Well, every story has its villain, and the story of Jesus' birth, the real story of the first Christmas, has a doozy of a villain, but he's not just a storybook villain. He is, in fact, a real man of history, Herod the Great. Now, he's called Herod the Great for a reason, but when we meet him in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, he is not great, at least not great in the sense that we would want any king of ours to be great. He is the one who is ultimately responsible for ordering the slaughtering of the innocents, that handful of children in Bethlehem. And why? Because he believes there's a pretender to his throne that has been born, and he is determined to wipe him out. Now, as you'll see on the other side of the break, Herod the Great, the man that Dr. Paul Meyer calls the monster of the Christmas story, has a track record of wiping out kids. We'll be right back. Dr. Paul Meyer is our guest. We're talking about the first Christmas. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. The radio voice of the Lutheran faith for the 21st century. You're listening to Issues Etc. Life Week 2023 with Lutherans for Life is coming soon, and you're personally invited to join in celebrating that you are blessed for life. From Sunday, January 15th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org for more information and for Zoom links. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. facebook.com slash lutheracademy. 
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the first Christmas on this Christmas Day with Dr. Paul Meyer. Dr. Meyer, we come to the man that you call the monster of the Christmas story, Herod the Great. Was he, in fact, as bad as the Bible and, you mentioned before, Josephus, make him out to be? Not the younger Herod the Great. Uh, The younger Herod had, I think, every reason to have that uh, wonderful epithet attached to his name, the Great, because he was great in so many ways. He kept the peace between Rome and Judea. He uh, guaranteed the kingdom. He drove out the invaders. Uh, He was a master builder, not only building seven great fortresses across the land, but also the great renewed temple in Jerusalem. Let's not forget that here's the builder. Uh, he's another Solomon in that respect. And he facelifted the city. He, he uh, built a port up at Caesarea where there was no port uh, by sinking ship hulls and making a, a great breakwater there and the superstructure built on the ship, buried ship hulls, submerged ship hulls. Uh, he, he was uh, uh, an amazing, amazing figure, no question about it. He enjoyed the friendship of both Julius Caesar and uh, Augustus himself. Uh, he was Mark Antony, you name them, all the great Romans knew him. And so he was very, very successful. Problem was, he married too often and concurrently. He had ten different queens, and each of the uh, queens provided offspring, princes, royal princes. All of the fellows in the group wanted to be number one, and there can only be number one. And so the household was riven by conflicting ambitions all the time and of brothers plotting against one another regularly. If there weren't two or three major plots afoot in that household before they had orange juice in the morning, something was wrong. And so Herod, uh, and there were plots against the throne of good old dad. So Herod put to death three of his own sons, on suspicion of treason, he executed his favorite wife, the Maccabean princess, Mariami. Uh, he killed her mother, his mother-in-law, one of his many mothers-in-law, I should say. He invited uh, the high priest down to uh, Jericho for a swim. They played a very rough game of water polo. They drowned him. Uh, he killed several uncles, a couple cousins. Uh, you might say he was a real family man in that respect. Uh, so could he have killed a dozen babies in Bethlehem? Yes, that's all there were. Please understand that uh, the atrocity in Bethlehem was even less than Connecticut uh, in terms of the number of babies that were killed. Uh, we get the wrong idea, you know, the Hollywoody versions where Herod's troops fan across the sleeping town and they find babies both sides of the street, all stories of the apartments and kill them. No, a little Bethlehem was not that big. I did an actuarial study of Bethlehem. There would be about two dozen babies, two years old and under half of the wrong sex. And so uh, this is the kind of information amid so much infant mortality in the ancient world that wouldn't even have come, I think, to the ears of Josephus. And that's, I think, the reason he didn't record it. Then, uh, finally, with the last few minutes that are left to us, Dr. Meyer, um, had we been among those shepherds who are startled out of their uh, nighttime shepherd duties by the announcement of the angels and go to Bethlehem, 
He says, they go with haste to Bethlehem to see the thing they'd been told. What would we have seen had we entered that place where Christ had just been born? Paint a picture for us. Well, I think, first of all, we would not have seen any kind of a halo over the baby uh, or over the Blessed Virgin or Joseph. Uh, You know, that's what we would expect usually, or the immediate adoration. It would have been a perfectly natural scene. And I think the only thing that could have brought uh, the shepherds to an otherwise natural birth, taking place under unnatural circumstances, was, of course, the angelic uh, uh, appearance ahead of time. You know, when the heavens open up with the chorus of angels singing, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) And I think at that point they're going to follow the heavenly uh, orders uh, in order to come to Bethlehem. So they're primed with that. For that reason, the ordinary becomes extraordinary as far as they're concerned. Uh, And I I like the reaction of the shepherds. You know, they did exactly what Christians are supposed to do. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying, which is told them concerning this child. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all things they had heard and seen. What a wonderful reaction to the nativity account. Uh, They they told what they saw, and that's exactly what Christians should do to the present day. What we see in faith, we ought to uh, tell others about. How would they have... I mean, they knew what the sign would be, but how would these shepherds, obviously familiar with Bethlehem as, as a town, how would they have found one baby, even in a small town? Uh, it wasn't the, shars, uh, the star, I should say, shining over the state. It wasn't anything like that. Bethlehem is really pretty small, let's remember. And so when you have uh, a very pregnant woman uh, who can't find a place to have her baby, uh, this becomes the big town gossip for sure. And so when they come into Bethlehem, there's no question that the word of mouth had passed, and I think they'd have no trouble finding the main caravansary or inn where this took place. And um, so we can take our crash, keep our crash, but uh, perhaps turn it into a grotto. Um, We can have Mary and Joseph. We can have the baby, maybe a few animals in there, and the shepherds, and, and be content with that. Is that what you're saying, Dr. Meyer? That's fine, but there's no reason you can't have a few magi in the background. I mean, there's no reason to, to overthrow the, the traditional view. It's that we, we're not going to say that these crushes are absolutely, totally faithful to the facts of history. Uh, you can coalesce them a little bit. We, we do coalesce things regularly. Well, finally, with only about uh, a minute here, what does it mean for you as an historian to again and again look at this story that's recorded so well and so consistently? by the gospel writers. Um, what's, what sense do you have of that, as not only as a, as a Christian theologian, but as an historian? Well, of course, it is totally extraordinary. I mean, out of the ordinary. I mean, this is unlike anything you ever find from the ancient world, no question about that. And for that reason, you know, I was always very concerned about these exceptions, you know. That this is not the rule, you know. You don't have heavens open up with... Uh, not just stars, but angels singing and this kind of thing. And for, for that reason, I went into ancient history, and it's been my bag ever since, to try to find points of tangency between the sacred account and the secular evidence on the outside. And so I've had just a lot of fun uh, comparing sacred and secular over uh, three or four decades here. And I find that again and again, the biblical record lines up very, very well with the, uh, the parameters of... Uh, evidence that we have from all over the ancient world, the geographical factors, the archaeological factors, the, the historical data uh, is borne out very, very well indeed by the Nativity account. And so these exceptional things happen in a very, 
very historical background. Dr. Paul Meyer is Professor Emeritus of Ancient History at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. He's author of several books, including In the Fullness of Time, a historian looks at Christmas, Easter, and the early church, and his latest novel titled The Constantine Codex. Dr. Meyer, thanks for being our guest, and Merry Christmas. Thank you, Todd. Blessed Christmas to you, too. In the next hour of Issues Etc. on this Christmas Day, we're going to study a Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Dr. Arthur Just will be our guest. Folks, if you appreciate our special Christmas programming, please consider making a special Christmas gift to support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. You can make your financial contribution by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. Send it to Issues Etc. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois 62234. Here's that address again. Issues Etc. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also make a year-end tax-deductible donation at our website, issuesetc.org. Now remember, for any sized year-end gift, we will send you a CD of Lutheran Service Book, Hymns and Services, and a CD with the sermon that I've preached on the birth of Christ and on the confession of St. Peter. Thanks for listening, and thanks for keeping us in mind during this Christmas season. The picture as it is painted by the gospel writers is one of remarkable ordinariness. Ordinary people, Mary and Joseph, behaving in ordinary ways, and remarkable extraordinariness. That is, this child born of these ordinary people, the Son of God, Son of Mary, makes this story something completely different. Not just the birth of a baby story but a changing of human history story, the entrance of salvation through his death and resurrection into our world story. I'm Todd Wilkin. More issues, etc. after this break. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address... Lutheran Public Radio, P.O. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, In a world awash with all sorts of information, opinions, and ideas, there is still a place where God's Word is the central and only focus. Messiah Lutheran Church, 801 North Madison, Lebanon, Illinois. At 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, God's people gather there to listen to Him. There you will find His words of law and gospel, and of course, our Lord's Holy Supper. Bible classes focus on the Bible and the Lutheran confessions. Come, listen, believe, and live, and check out our website at messiahlebanon.org. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, 
and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today.